Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday morning. It's uh, early in the week, but uh, I'm going to get this uh, done, especially we have a sponsor today in, in somebody's memory, I believe today or tomorrow, tonight probably. Is the yard site uh, Fleischman family? Young Fleischman is sponsoring this. Been for his father, like Shmuel Fleischman, who was a very hush of a person in Baltimore. Actually, he was a student of my father 10 million years ago in the old TA and uh, was a very successful uh, person in business. But was a big Baltimore. I'll tell you something, he was a big Baltimore, but he didn't talk about it. That's rare. <laughs> Nowadays, most people give Tzedakah, they make sure everybody knows about it. But anyway, uh, I hope his neshama will have an aliyah for him and the family. And they should all have a lot of mazel in all areas of life. I can't believe it. he told me 16 years. I would have said it's five years. And it's funny how these things go. Uh, but in tribute to his memory, I wanted to talk about some. I was looking who the yard sites are today. That was a slim pickings until I saw a name, Ariel Bam sent me in, and then I immediately jumped on it. Someone you never probably heard of, and that's probably Yehuda Leib Cyrilson which is not exactly a household name, although it ought to be. And um, uh, very, just very interesting, per- and I find very interesting person. Here's somebody with a big rabbi in Eastern Europe, like a million others. There he was. Um, it, uh, let me see, he's like 1860 to the, to the war, to 1941. So, you know, that's his years of activity. Late 1800s and, and up to the Holocaust. Uh, it was a rub in, in, in Russia, in the Russian Empire. And uh, like I said before, he's not so well known today, um, which is how it goes sometimes. Some people, you know, get fame and, and not. But those who don't know, it'll be Hudalab Chirilson. This is somebody who uh, is like, reminds me a little bit of Zevin. They came from a Lubavitch background, a Chabad background. That's a more accurate way of putting it, as you see in a second. Uh, but, I don't, but he didn't have a career as a Chabadnik. That's not, you know, and notice he was. But Nassim his career was one of the leading rabbis. I would even call the Litvisha rabbis of the uh, of the first half of the twentieth century. <clears throat> Here's somebody that was born back in the eighteen uh, sixty. That's a long time ago, and that means he's growing up in the eighteen sixties and seventies, eighties. That's when you had these splits in in Chabad. I told you about once before, you know, Lubavitch and Babrysk and all this stuff, and. His, let's put it this way. He was connected with a certain branch of the Chabad. That's how he grew up. Most of you wouldn't know what I'm talking about if I got into the details. Uh, but, and his father was a rabbi in a small town. He was from Chernigov. You know, small, these, this is the, how should I put it, the Ukraine, the part of the Ukraine that was a Chabad area. Okay? Uh, very heavy. And uh, ordinarily, you know, he came from such a background he was the rabbi of Chabad Shola or something like that, but that's not what he wanted to be, obviously. He wanted to be something bigger than that. And so, uh, here's somebody who's uh, obviously an Eloy and becomes a Go'onadir. I'll say it again, he's a Go'onadir and a post and all the rest of it, the whole business. 
and uh, you're, he's uh, born in 1860, so you think about your 1820s. I'm sorry, think about when he's 20 years old, I'll put him in the 1880s. And this is somebody who's always going to be a little bit different. That's why he's very interesting to me. And I'll tell you what I mean. From, of course, and a gone, of course. I mean, now, besides that, um, in his time, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, one of the big uh, issues in the Russian Empire, which is where most of the Jews lived, they had a tremendous baby boom. I just did this in my uh, lecture the other day. I don't have the chart in front of me, but the uh, baby boom was crazy. The Jewish population, between 1825 and 1880, I'm going by memory over here, in the world, went from 3.2 million to like 7.6 million. That's more than double in, in what, 50-some uh, years. You hear what I just said? We've never had anything like that. And then it like doubled again. Uh, by 1920 or so. This uh, uh, That's a subject I may address one time or another in a lecture series or whatever. This unique era of tremendous Jewish population growth, you might regard it as a reform for the Maka because the Holocaust was coming. That's a from perspective. You understand? They're going to kill 6 million people. You need a lot more Jews. That's uh, just an interesting way of looking at it. But he's part of this era. And... In Tsarist Russia, the Jews never had any rights. And the government, by this time, was interfering always with the religion. Because the control, control freaks of everything. And the Russian government, the Tsarist government, wanted to control the rabbis and the rabbinate. And, tr and turn it into what the Christian clergy was, which was a, a tool of the state. That's the history of Russian Christianity, starting from Peter the Great. They, they, they took over control of the church and made it part of the state apparatus. They wanted to do that to the Jews. Jews didn't want that. At least let's put it this way. Some Jews didn't want it. And many Jews didn't want it. And so I've discussed this before. I don't want to repeat myself. I've talked about it on many occasions. Uh, but ended up with two types of rabbis, A and B. One was the, the, the rabbi that the government insisted be the official rabbi of the community. They called the Kazonia Rabina, the, the, the official government rabbi or crown rabbi and his job was to be the official rabbi of the community vis-a-vis -vis the authorities and most importantly he keeps the records of births and deaths because in russia they had it worked out that the um clergy people are the ones who keep who gets born who dies and who gets married and who gets divorced that sort of thing and uh, and they had to swear that they're telling the truth in other words it was a big penalty if you cheated on that and in other words if you're a catholic the catholic priest registers your birth your death your marriage, your divorce, and that sort of thing. If you're a Protestant, a Protestant guy. So if it's a Jewish, it's a rabbi. That was the Russian system, okay? And uh, that's a very important government post. And by the way, it comes with a salary. Now, the salary is not paid by the government. The salary is paid by the government. It means the government forces the Jewish community to pay your salary. And the government decides how big the, Jew the salary is. So basically, um, this requires somebody could read and write Russian. And had some, uh, like you and I would today say, a 12th grade education Maybe the law might have been like a 13th grade education. And uh, the Rabbanim generally didn't have that. And uh, first of all, in principle, they were against Lemudicho, you know, mess. And second of all, the pain in the neck is that you live your life in Yiddish. You know, you pick up a couple of Russian words along the way. The vast majority of Rabbanim, that kind of stuff, especially the Frummies, didn't have nothing to do with the Goyim to the degree that they were able to get away with that over there. And they lived their lives in Yiddish, you know what I'm saying? And uh, that's the way they thought of the Jewish way. All the issues we have today with the opposition to Limuri come from this era. You know, come from this era. 
and uh, therefore the from Jews and Rabbanim uh, ended up with a situation in which the official rabbi is some jerk, and the real rabbi, who's the government does not recognize as a rav, uh, and he's the one who really does the, the kedushin and the gittin and all that, uh, and runs the, the and, and occupies a position of abbasin and so forth. That person is not recognized by the government because he has no secular education whatsoever. And this was called the uh, the spirit the chavner, the spiritual rabbi, meaning the government itself knew that what they're forcing the Jews to do is something the Jews don't want to do. The whole idea of a rabbi is for, for for religious people, secular people, atheists don't need a rabbi, and you're forcing it. Consider, for example, in a Hasidic community, uh, everybody knows these Jews don't want a a uh, secular uh, uh, a rabbi who has a a, a Gaish education doesn't know nothing from Judaism, because most of the government rabbis, Rubik Kula, were ignorant of Judaism. That's not why they were picked. They pays a good job, you know what I mean. They would get a pharmacist, a, you know, a, a, a lawyer's clerk, um, you know, a guy, Stamazite, store owner, with a with a something of a Russian education, and uh, you know that guy would have that position. So it's very famous. Rabbi Zulchan Inspector was not the governor of officially, unofficially he was, and the, the government knew it. You know, saying there was there was a Dovriyadua that the you know Rabbi Chaim Salvechik, people like this are renowned among Jews. You know, saying or in the the government knew they had spies. I mean, they they knew, but uh, neither side would back off. The Frum went back off, and the government went back off. It's just, just just interesting. You know what I mean? Just interesting. Now the problem is. The following. Uh, as long as the official rabbi is an object of ridicule, everything's okay. Because uh, this is a joke. And the Frum always tried the best they can to have somebody appointed as an official rabbi, somebody who has no shaykhs to Judaism. Because then, it, then it's obvious it's a joke. You get it? Like I said before, whoever was the official rabbi of Kovna had nothing to do with, uh, you know, with, with Jewish life. However, as the 19th century went by, you did have X number of people who in one way or another got what we would call a modern rabbinic education or a maskilic education and trained themselves or got training in uh, uh, being oratory and things like that. And they could have been smart fellows. Uh, I'll say these are maskilic types or people with some sort of education and, you know, educated people, um, not dummies, they don't know shots and post game, right? But they know a lot more, as the expression used to be, the guys are bucking 2,000 pages of of uh, newspapers, of journals. Like you say today, he doesn't know shots, but he knows Mishpachan and and, uh, and uh, the other one, Colt, Ami Colt, right? He knows the Ated, Colt, he can quote you all the articles. That's the type of people you had at that time. And... The better of them, those the more capable of them, indeed, assume some kind of rabbinical authority. Let's put it this way, data charisma. And if you've ever been in Eastern Europe or you know anything about it, there did develop a trend to what they have a modern Orthodox show everywhere. In Vilna and Kovna and this place and that place, a lot, a lot, a lot of places have what they call modern Orthodox show. They call it Horshul, a show with a choir. And... Um, uh, that would mean a show. Now, by the way, having a choir in and of itself is okay. But it means you have a fancy chasm, you have a choir, so it's very modern, you know. 
And the rabbi is there mainly to give the speeches. And people love the speeches. The guy was let's say, educated, and he'd be a good orator, and so on and so forth. It could be the regular rabbi was opposed Bucking Shah's supposed to and couldn't say, speak to save his life. I've seen plenty of that. So, and so it became a delicate issue that the Rabbani were scared because the uh, the um, official rabbis were, were getting too much uh, traction. Let's put it that way. Okay? Too much traction. You know, I was in uh, Vilna, what, two years ago? For a couple hours. And we davened in the one shul that was functioning. And they had a sign in front, this is a Vilna Gonshul, Lubavitcher, stay out, or something, something like that. Which was baloney, because it, it wasn't a grass show. And, the, and actually, it was the horse, it was the modern show from way back when. It was the least from of all the shows in, in Vilna. It just happened to be the one that survived. It's a pretty synagogue. Happened to be the one that survived. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, that attracted what we, what today you would call a modern element. Modern element. That famous cantors, and that famous choirs, and all that. Nothing wrong with that if if it goes right. I mean, I've been in the great synagogue, you know, if you like that sort of thing. But um, the emphasis wasn't on the from kite, let's put it that way. Now, the reason I'm going through all this is that this came to be more and more problems in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s when it came by. And the rabbis were aware of it. And a lot of times, a guy who was a graduate of yeshiva, a big time chacham, a from guy, couldn't get a top job because it went to one of these other guys. So it's not reform and conservative exactly. It's not. But you get my point. Right? It smacks of that. And this is worrisome. Moreover, the younger generation growing up would be very impressed with the guy. Say, oh, he's got a university education. He's got a, uh, uh, he's got a, uh, whatever he calls. You know, he can speak well. Uh, he's polished. Dresses neatly. Not a botlin, you know. He's up as somebody. He's a European. He understands he stands up when a lady walks in. He understands, you know, manners. And, um, the, you know, the old-fashioned abundance was like, that's all chesenis, it's all baloney, it's all junk. It isn't, it isn't, to Balabatim, especially in the heyday of bourgeois European uh, middle-class culture. It was something. So the question was, what do you do? Right? This is a problem which also Salantar, uh, uh, you know, uh, thought about and, uh, yeah, a lot of people, you know, were, were worried about this. I would even say it reached, like, a crisis in the early 20th century. Meiser thought about it. And all kind of things. Let me put it this way. This was a problem. And it was often written about, it was called She'elas HaRabonim, in the newspapers at that time, like Hapelas, that was the from newspaper and all that. I happened to have the whole set. And, um, what do you do about it? And, there's no one answer. One of them is say to heck with them and just try to concentrate on the firm stuff. Uh, because if you start, because because the other way is, what are you going to include the Murichol and the yeshivas? That, that's really what I'm getting to. Uh, now, you know, that was a big no-no. On the other hand, maybe it shouldn't be. This was a big hot item. And uh, all I can say is that the vast majority of Rabbanim in principle, oppose any Russian stuff at all. Uh, some, what I would call left wingers, even though that's a funny term to use, it would include like the uh, the, the or some you know, they would say no, no, no. In as part of yeshiva training, especially with the guys who are going to run us, and ever since we saw Salanter, it was noticed 
that the position of Rabbanus was very important because they're going to have a tremendous hashpa on the future of the Kehillah. Uh, if the Rabbanus in, in the Russian Empire was in the wrong hands, in Lithuania, in, in, in Belarus, in Ukraine, in places like that, um, catastrophes could happen. There's no trouble with the non-from and the secular Zionists, the Bundes and the others. This is all we need. So uh, some said, listen, it should be in yeshivas and Slovakia and tell us all the rest of it. Have classes in um, basic limuri chol and stuff like that to to make it that you know the rabbonim should be able to have respect from the balabatim and they get elected and supported. I think I told you a little while ago, if my memory serves me correctly, about the archa which is it made a big difference erosion on people if you can talk to the Russian officials. If if a rov comes in, no matter how and he has to take a guy. Imagine like in America today, for example. Somebody's a rov. He's got to deal with um, the mayor, the governor, this, that, and the other. And he needs somebody to translate for him. It works and it doesn't work. You know, Hasidic rabbis do that. It, it, it does work and it doesn't work. But a lot of people, you can't help it. The truth is a lot of people are like, well, you can't learn English. You know, what, what, you know what, what, what's wrong with you? And uh, there were a certain group in the middle of these young rabbis, and Yudalim Sirilson was one of them, who said like this, I'm not going to college, I'm not doing the, the yeshiva is the yeshiva, and on the side and on my own, I'm going to look, get the secular knowledge I need to know. You get it? Zevin was like that also, you know. On my own, on the side, as a, as a private matter. I'm not telling somebody else to do it, this is for me. And so as a result, I don't know how he did it exactly, but first of all, Torah he knew cold. Uh, Hasidus obviously must have known cold. Because he learned like in Lubavitch type places. Uh, or Kapus type places. And um, the and and as was true of many Jews who were very interested in Jewish life at that time. You're a Klai Yisrael person. So they became Bucky in Haskal literature. To use, no, let's put it this way. They read all the newspapers all the time. And most of the newspapers were secular and not from, you know, Hatzfira and Hamaget, Hamelos, all that. You had to know because you know what the other side is saying. So they're very into what's happening in the Hebrew-speak, the Moscolic world, shall we say, and uh, and also Russian. And basic, you know, uh, as they say, the English, math, science, and social studies, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so he, get, he educated himself. And as a result, his value as a rabbi shut up. Because people like this, so you hire this guy as a rabbi. First of all, he's a Talmud Chacham, no question about it. And he's a somebody. And not only that, he knows Russian, he knows other stuff, so he will get accepted as a crown rabbi. So he'll be one of these rare cases of a twofer, right? You get him, he's both the Kazanya Rabbin and the Duchovny Rabbin. He's both the government-recognized rabbi and the from-recognized rabbi. And if you know what you're doing, you can then use your skills and power um, to advance Yiddishkeit. Uh, so, in other words, you can set up a school, you can do this, you can do that, you can explain to the, to the, to the non-from and uh, to the Russian officials, you know, uh, what's going on. And that just makes you a more Kashua person. There were X number of rabbis that did this. You know, not a whole bunch, but there were some. And if you throw into the uh, 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 pile, not only was a, a, a gun in, in learning, and uh, secular and the Haskalah, he was also, I think this part of the Haskalah education, right? right? 
um, an excellent speaker and writer. Excellent speaker and writer. And, I mean, he's, it's, it's a pleasure to read his stuff. Now, he wrote in Hebrew, sometimes in Russian. All this is very unusual for a chash of a rav. You know, you know, let me put it this way. Uh, none of this applies to, uh, what's the name in Vilna? You know, Chaim you know, whose colleague he was. You see? Uh, he was just a Yiddish speaking and, you know, stayed within the firm world and so on and so forth. Adra, Chaim Meiser, operated by pulling strings behind the scenes to get his candidate elected to be the official rabbi. You know what I mean? Uh, Rubenstein. Well, here you have somebody who really he can do it all himself. And as a result, uh, if you throw all this in, whoever takes him for Rav gets a, a, a quite a package. Right? Quite a package. Now, here's the interesting, I mean, there are many interesting, but I can only share some. A very interesting person. Now, uh, if he was born in 1860, then that means by the time he's in his uh, 30s, so, uh, you know, it's the Russian Empire with all the anti-Semitism and all this junk going on, as, as we all know. And, um, oy, uh, what will be of the future? Will the Jews ever get a break in Russia? If they won't get a break in Russia, they do. Well, they're all moving to America. You know, they're leaving Russia. They're all going to Argentina, elsewhere. I, I get that. You know, emigration. Millions will emigrate out of the Russian Empire. Who can blame them? Uh, what about Eretz Yisrael? We would have Tsirosim, but from those uh, Yiddish Yidden who say like this, if you're going to leave Russia, go to Israel, build up Israel. So what I'm trying to say is like this, he's a Zionist, but not in the way you understand. Um, he was in the Chovet Zion. Uh, he was one of those who said like this, let's build up Eretz Israel as a Jewish center and a Jewish state eventually, a Mamlacha. From, though, from. So, um, you know what I'm saying? He's the opposite of Satmar. There's nothing wrong, and he writes about this at length, with a Jewish state now, provided it's from. When the Zionist movement started in the 1890s with Herzl, he uh, was very interested in it, but he wrote, and he has a lot of articles on this, uh, in the old newspapers, some of them probably online, because he's a very good writer. And, you know, he's very illogical, very common sense. Listen, we're all interested in Zionism, in the sense of building a Baruch Yisrael, we want to move as many Jews as we can there to Israel, set up Jewish um, cities, factories, you know, the whole nine yards. But it has to be Jewish. The trouble I have with Zionism, he says, is, he says the, the Yehudim Maharavim, you know, the Western Jews like Herzl, there's nothing about Yiddishkeit, admits it, is therefore trying to frame Jewish nationalism in a secular European framework. And he said, I understand why he's doing it, but the trouble is that's going to make you completely misunderstand the position of the Jewish religion within the Jewish national framework. There's no Jewish nationalism without the Torah part, without the religion part. And these guys can't see it. And uh, when Zionism started, he was very interested. He got involved, and he came to a famous meeting in Warsaw in 1898. It's a whole long business. And uh, he said of him, and he, he laid it out very logically, and he basically said like this. If you guys are talking about building a state, and leaving religion to the to Rabbanim, as we would say today, fine. If you're going to try to create an alternative Judaism, then I'm against it. Now, the answer is that uh, Herzl himself actually would be okay with what he suggested, but the cultural Zionists, the Haram and Weizmann and all this, they wanted alternative Judaism. It became very clear. And so the Zionist movement leaders, they said, we're not going to put 
uh, you know, all Zionism under control. He basically said that, you know, there should be a rabbinical commission and, and all matters of education and culture should be under the frum. They're not going to do that. And so he said, well, then I'm out of here. So he said, well, then go. So then he got together with a bunch of people, started the Mizrahi. You understand? Uh, but his idea of Mizrahi was, it should not be in the Zionist movement, it should be parallel. Right? Because if you're in the Zionist movement, you're cooperating with people who have the wrong conception of Judaism, and as I said before, they're going to try to create a secular Judaism, an alternative form of the Jewish religion, if I can use that terminology. It'll be non-religious, but it'll be an alternative form of Jewish religion, and that's Traif. Um, but the Mizrahi movement didn't turn out that way either, even though he's one of the founders. They said, we want to be part of the Zionist movement, and they did join. The only thing is, we will try to advance the, 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 uh, the cause of religion within the Zionist movement. That turned him off. And so he quit the Mizrahi. And then for the next 10 years, he's writing all these articles in which he said like this. We need, this is going to sound funny, we need a from Zionist movement, but it's not part of the Zionist movement. We need a from movement of the Haredim, who will be pro-Eretz Yisrael and try to build up Eretz Yisrael and move Haredi Jews there. As I'm using the terminology the way we use today. At that time, the word Haredi simply meant Shema Shabbos. Um, but the way we use it today. And uh, uh, let's build up Eretz Yisrael that way. Which Lamai says is what, is what the Haredi world has done. You know they live in Israel and they build up their own places. B'nai Brak, Yushalayim, whatever you want to call it. <coughs> so, it's, so it's working not part of in parallel and he worked uh, for 10 years to make this happen and that's the Aguda let me put it this way that's how he conceived the Aguda he's one of the founders of the Aguda Israel. he was a member from day one of the Moetz of Gedolia Torah but I would say from the extreme left wing of the Aguda if you understand what I mean extreme left wing Aguda means the right wing would be almost like Satmer that they were super anti-Zionist and uh, they're opposed to all that stuff. The left wing would say like this, no, 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 a lot of what they're doing, the Zionists doing is right. The Yiddishkeit part stinks, and therefore we want to do the same thing they do, but under Haredi auspices. Uh, and this is a position he fought for and advocated till he died, so from 1912 to 1942, you know, next 30 years of his life, approximately, till he died. And all during this time, as I said, he was one of the leaders and the founders of the Agodis Yisrael, he was uh, the original members of the uh, Moses Gedolia Torah. I'm just trying to say he was that big. He was that. He was a goan, okay, um, and the super from Kai. But he thought in broad terms, okay. And it's just very interesting to me because the rest of his life he was like this. He's very uh, always pushing a kind of Haredi Zionist agenda. If I can push, if I can put it that way. If he would have been the leader, then the, somehow or other. He always wanted the Mizrahi and the Agoda somehow to somehow to come together because he had a very big and broad vision. And he said, you know, we're frittering away a lot of our energy fighting each other. Really, we should be combining on common goals, which is to build up as much from Yiddishkeit in the new Palestine as, as possible. Now, as I said before, he was a tremendous speaker and he had a secular education. And, so the Russian, and, and I remember he wrote... During the Russian-Japanese War of 1904-1905, he wrote a pamphlet in Russian supporting the Russian government. Now, Russia is right in the Russian-Japanese War. I know he didn't believe it, but listen, this is Russia, you know what I mean? Uh, that's how it goes over there, <laughs> even today. So, uh, 
As a result, the Russian government liked him. You get it? Uh, even though it was the Tsar of Russia, and they were unbelievable anti-Semitic, but uh, they had population of millions of Jews, and they had to deal with them in some, some fashion or another. And I remember um, they used to have something called, I don't know if I ever told you about this, the Ravinsky Commission, the, the Rabbinical Commission. One second. There's a fantastic book, I don't know if I ever mentioned it here, really a very fascinating book called um, Jewish Marriage and Divorce in Imperial Russia by Tehran Free, some lady, I don't know who she is, that must be 20 years old. And um, she went to Russia and did research in this old stuff, and the Russian government had a commission they're supposed to meet every once in a while and uh, deal with uh, questions in the rabbinate with marriage and divorce and see if the Rabbanim are doing the right thing or not. Anyway, this is, as far as rabbis are concerned, this was the top position that the Russian government could appoint you to. Not that anybody wanted to deal with the Russian government, but I'm just saying that's the way it was. And they made him the head of the commission. Now, the czar's government recognized he's a real, if they would put some uh, second raider in, they would have no authority. So they recognize he's a big rabbi, but on the other hand, he knows Russian and all that kind of business. And, uh, you know, and he's patriotic. Uh, because he had all these uh, milers going for him, so he started out being rabbi small places in Ukraine, as as happens, you know, small villages, small towns, I'm saying. But eventually, in the early 1900s, he began to rob in Kishinev, and that's where he remained for the rest of his life till he died. So uh, Kishinev is a place most people don't know about. It's Moldova today. Do you even know such a place exists? And uh, here you deal, and that's where he spends the rest of his career. So let me take a minute just to discuss this. Um, if you look at the map of Europe, probably don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you will. If you look at the map of Europe, you'll see that near the, or the Black Sea, you have Russia and Romania, right? But the borders there, I'm not going to expect you to look up online, you know, the historical maps, but the borders there uh, are kind of shifting. Let me take from the beginning. Once upon a time, there was something called the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which ruled a third of Europe for hundreds of years. And then starting in the 1800s, the Russian Empire started biting off bits. Russia coming from the north towards the Turkish Empire in the south, and the Turks ruled a third of Europe, all of the Balkans. And one of the places the Turks ruled for hundreds of years was what we today call Romania. But there was no such thing as Romania. There were different uh, uh, provinces. And each one had its own way of ruling and all that stuff. So one was called Wallachia, one was called Moldavia. There was a, so the Turks had a guy called the Prince of Moldavia, uh, Moldavia who, who served under them, was uh, under their uh, control, and the Prince of Moldavia and Prince of Wallachia. There was a Prince of Transylvania until the Austrians took it over, and so forth. So you got to know all these provinces. What can I tell you? So in the north, it's called Bessarabia, near the Dniester River, not too far from Odessa. And this is an area basically part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. The Russians took it over in, uh, what was it, in the early 1800s. Then um, Russia lost it in the Crimean War, I think it was, to Romania. Because they set up a country called Romania, consisting of these two provinces. And the Romanians were terribly anti-Semitic. In the 1800s, they were the most anti-Semitic country. That's quite a statement I just made, right? And uh, there were pogroms, and, 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 and they always uh, dispossessed the Jews. Montefiore went there to try fixing up, but it didn't help. 
the Israeli and the uh, treaty of, uh, what was it called, the Congress of Berlin put in the peace treaty. Romania had to treat the Jews well, but they didn't. So Romania was always a problem, which is why Romanian Jews fled to America and to Israel. The, the earliest Zionist pioneers actually came from Romania, not from Russia. Uh, and then after the 1877 war, Russia took over Bessarabia, and um, it, it was part of the Russian Empire until the First World War. And that's when Cyrilson was there. So this is an area that the main city is Kishinev. And Kishinev is a town that was settled and became big in the 1800s. And there's no one group. You got your Armenians, you got your Greeks, you got your uh, Romanians, you got your Russians, you got your Ukrainians, and the Jews. And turned into a big Jewish community. So by the time uh, Rabbi Cyrilson was elected there, I think it was 1908, 1909, something like that, in a city of 70,000 Jews, that's a lot of people. So to be a Rav of Bezdin, of a hill of 70,000 people, recognized by all men's elements of the community, he had to be a very broad-minded uh, hush of a person. That's my point. And he was there until he died. Uh, there were times when other communities warned him. There's a whole bunch of stories that he was elected to other towns in Poland, but Kishinev said no. And there's a lot of Lush and Har involved. I'll skip all that. But the he stayed the rest of his life. Some of you may have heard of Kishinev, because in 1903 there was a famous pogrom that killed a bunch of Jews there. Although, not by our standards, and he killed 45 Jews. You know, which is nothing compared to what happened later on, but it was a big deal at that time. But he came later, right? Now, Kishinev is a rich city. It's a beautiful place. And all that stuff, and uh, economically, and uh, it's very interesting. He's rubbed there, and the reason I'm mentioning it is because you are an Aguda guy, but you're an Aguda guy that got elected by a community where 99% is not Aguda. So, what do you do exactly? Or 90%, whatever. You hear what I'm saying? You're an Aguda guy. In fact, you're a founder of the Aguda. Let me put it this way he founded the Aguda while he was rubbed of Kishnev, but the people in the town were not Haredim. They had a few like that. Uh, but there are not. There's a very big Zionist element. There's always a Zionist element in Eastern Europe when there's anti-Semitism, because the Zionism at least offers you a, a dream to get out of there. And I'm just trying to show you, a guy can't be a chenyok and be a rabbi of that kind of killer. You can be the rabbi of an agudashul in some small place. You can be the rabbi of some Haredi small community somewhere. That's different, okay? Because that's a self-selecting group. You understand? You can be, you know, in Gateshead or whatever because it's a self-selecting group. But you can't be the head of the whole London if you're like that. You can't be the head of everything because the people won't stand for it. They say, you don't represent, it's not what we are. You see? It's not what we are. Uh, these always cause tensions in the modern era in Judaism. Rebchaim Meiser had this problem. You understand? In Vilna. You know, the, the, the community's not all like that. I'll say it again. In America, we don't have this. In America, every show does its own thing. Nobody's connected officially with anybody else. So if I want to make a place that every week they make a bracha for Israel, I can do if I may If I want to make a shul where every week they make a klola for Israel on Shabbos, we can do that also because you just get the people who agree with you. You understand? So in America, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, every little place can be uh, ideologically pure. But I'm talking about, again, Europe in these places where you have whole communities of thousands of people and somehow they all got to get together or else have a peer and break into separate kehillahs. But the point was to keep it one Kehillah. So anybody who had that kind of position had to be somebody very smart. You understand? 
like the Punisher, Richard Rubble was like that. He had such a killer. And Cyrilson was like that when the, in, in Kishinev. He had a much bigger community than the Punisher Rubble. Punisher was like uh, five, ten thousand people. This is 70,000 people, okay? Now, he remains here, um, and he's writing uh, not only Charles and Chubis, uh, which I'll get to in a second, but, uh, you know, constant newspaper articles, and always advocating a front position, obviously, and advocating this broad national position, which is we should all move to Israel, but make it from. Comes the First World War, and uh, that's a bummer. When the First World War was over, for a whole bunch of reasons, the Bessarabia went back to being under Romania. So Kishin of all these people used to be part of Russia, but now it's part of Romania from 1919 to 1939, 1940. Like basically the rest of his life, 1920s and 30s, as we say today. This whole area was in Romania. And by the way, he was the chief rabbi of Bessarabia and of the whole Medina, made of whole Bessarabia. So basically, he was the official Rav, the chief rabbi, he really was. Not of 70,000 people, probably 100,000 people or more. That is quite a situation, that's quite a position. So he's in charge of all the Gitin and all the, the, the Geras and all that stuff for a whole Medina, okay? Uh, that requires some of the big places, and you, and you have to know when to hold them, when to fold them. And uh, now you're under a new country called Romania, which of course is very anti-Semitic. Romania was a big beneficiary, maybe the biggest, from the First World War. They tripled. You hear what I said? They tripled. It used to be Romania was just uh, Wallachia and Moldavia. Then they had Transylvania, which is huge, and Bessarabia, which is huge. So you add them all together, they double, tripled the, the country. And they made it that they had like one of the biggest Jewish populations. The Romanians didn't like that, but with all these borders that they took in, the Book of Vina, they were all the borders they took in, they had like uh, 750, 800,000 Jews. That's big. You understand? That's big. So, um, there's another time I should speak about Romania. It's a very interesting uh, topic. In the 20s and 30s, it was a very rich country, very full of anti-Semitism. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're Jewish, if you knew how to handle the system, that's what the Jews learned to do. But Romanian Jewry was a mishmash. The original Romanian Jews were Ashkenazic and Sephardic of a certain type. Then now you add in the Transylvania, which are all Hungarian Jews, uh, including the Reformed and the super-Orthodox. Let me give you an example who became part of Romania after the First World War. Satmar, Kleisenberg, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and then, separate from that, in the north part of the country, a different type is the Bessarabian Jews, who are more like Russian and Re Ukrainian Jews, and their leader was uh, Rabbi Tsirosin. Since he's in a new Medina, even though the guy was 60 years old, he studied up and he became a bucket Romanian, and he got elected to the parliament. He was a senator. <laughs> so, I tell you again, he was a, he was a, a genius at self-teaching. He taught himself Russian, taught himself German, all these other things he needed to know. And now he became a buck in Romanian. And he was giving speeches in the parliament. Now, naturally, he defended the Jews and attacked anti-Semitism, which, which in Romania, there were whole parties of anti-Semitism. And they had constant pogroms. There's a book I picked up not long ago when I was in London. I think I mentioned it to you. Not by that. French uh, reporter, he's a guy. Uh, what was it called? I have it here. Uh, the Wandering Jew Has Arrived by Albert Wandra. L-O-N-D-R-E-S. And he visits Romania in the 1920s after we read the book. And I remember he describes pogroms that happened there when he was there. 
uh, it was killing the Jews. It was, wasn't easy. And Cyrilson called him out, and he was very eloquent, and he was so such a good speaker, even though it was a new language, that the anti-Semitic parties freaked out, and they used their power to get his speeches deleted from the official record. In which case, he said, what am I speaking for if this can't get out? You know, they didn't want to get a newspaper because he was such a good speaker. So this is not your typical gone. You know what I mean? Now, I'm not finished. Because he, um, he's a senator, the chief rabbi, and because he realizes, the person I'm talking about is totally in, uh, connected with the Matthias. He's not a, a Garrett scholar with three or four Talmudim around him. The opposite. So uh, he's going to all the community stuff. If there's a Zionist convention, he went there, even though he's not good in it. And, you know, if there's a, a non from this or that, any Jewish stuff, he's there. And uh, he has books of speeches, which are actually very good. Very simple, very direct Hebrew. I always liked his books, although I lent them out and I can't find them because they're always in very nice block print. <laughs> it's always a Machai to read. You know, that's part of who he was. Made somebody care. And his speeches are always extremely simple and direct. And because uh, so, he knows everything, he can always pull out the right Medrash or the right Yerushalmi or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I think whoever picks up his uh, farm, you, 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 if you're a rabbi, you get a lot of good material uh, to, for, for speeches. And um, a very nicey, nice way of talking. That's obviously the way they liked it. And, you know, he can give them a sir, but, you know, in a nice way. Get it? In a nice way. And um, he realized, because this is already the end of the First World War, it's all about chinuch. And so I'm going to tell you something. This guy, you won't be surprised to hear it based on what I told you now. He set up in Kishinev, which is a big city, big Jewish community, an entire Reshet HaChinuch. You know, in other words, a TA, a Beis Yaakov, a Ne'er Israel, the whole nine yards. He he uh, set up uh, uh, day schools um, for boys and girls. And he made a gymnasium, a he made a gymnasium for boys. Notice, he made a from high school with a good secular program, good English. Which, you know, is <laughs> very rare. Okay? Because he said, this is the way it goes now. If we want kids to come, maybe have from Hushbov, you have to have the good secular education. And a good Jewish He had a yeshiva. I've never been able to ascertain whether he made the yeshiva or he just presided over a, a, a Hasidic yeshiva. Maybe it might be a Chabad yeshiva that was there for long ago. Based on some of his speeches, it sounds like he just took over the existing yeshiva, which probably was a loser operation. He built it up. That's my gut feeling. I could be wrong. I'm not the world's expert in Kishinev. But it's very interesting, therefore, in the 1920s and 30s, if you lived there, you, 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 and you, if you wish to, you had an excellent boys' school, K-12, through an excellent girls' school, K-12. through The boys' school was college prep. You understand? In addition to that, afterwards, he had a, a, a yeshiva. Uh, I don't know what standard, but I imagine it was him. So he gave Shiurim there. He was a Veldgon. And uh, this is something you don't see in many places, okay? So he built up a whole little empire, like the Ponovich. And I've never heard of people who went there, but I've read that many famous people learned there. I, I don't know them. Uh, unfortunately, when Hitler came out, they killed it all. That's just true everywhere in Eastern Europe. But it was really something, and it was all his doing. So, uh, Bessarabia, where he lived, was different than Transylvania, where the Sotmer and the Kleisenberg and the other ones were. It had its own character. It's mainly due to his hashpah, right? And uh, 
naturally, as anti-Semitism built up in the 20s and 30s, to which he was obviously very sensitive, uh, he became more and more Zionist. I don't mean Zionist, he never joined the Zionist movement, but he was very much more and more, as I said before, left-wing Agoda, if, if that's the right term to use, in which he said, listen, you know, we got to bury all these differences with the thing and move more and more from people to Israel. And more and more, anybody wants to go to Israel. And uh, he helped. There was a time in the 20s when a whole bunch of Jews were kicked out of Ukraine and ended up in Romania. And the Romanians wanted to tell them to go to hell, uh, literally, and uh, drown them in the river or you know, have nothing to do with them. And he used his influence with the Romanian government, you know, because he was a macher over there. And uh, he got these guys to go to Israel and to America. He saved, you no, know, he saved thousands of lives. Okay. And I know that he would, I don't know how, but I know he was cooperating with the uh, Freer Dicker Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was having trouble with the communists. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, you know, so he said, no, he kept up his Chabad ties, let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, I would say, just in my estimation, not that I know, he's probably the most Chabad rabbi in Europe. You know what I'm saying? No, somebody from that background who was the chief rabbi of a city. Not as a Lubavitcher, but as a as, as a Gon. He's a very interesting type person. And uh, all through the 20s and 30s, he was pushing, this never happened, that the Agudah Mizrahi should join. And then unite the common efforts to build up as much um, religious stuff as he could in Palestine. And move as many from Jews to there as he could. He wasn't listened to. But as the 20s and 30s went by, as you and I noticed, the build-up to the Holocaust, anti-Semitism... Just got worse and worse in Europe, didn't it? And uh, if you're in Romania, Mamas got worse. And um, I remember in the 30s, there was a moment when, um, it's called the Peel Commission, when Britain in 1937 considered setting up a state of Israel, maybe you don't know this, setting up a state of Israel um, in part of Palestine. It would have been a Jewish state about half the size of the current state of Israel. I'm talking about the old borders, you know, pre-67. So it's approximately half the size of that. But hey, it would have been a Jewish state. And there was a, and uh, happened to be in that year that there was an Agoda convention, a Knesset, a Gadola, and Marienbad in, the, in Czechoslovakia. And all the Gadolin were there from that time. And uh, the Yakis, who was it? Uh, Breuer, Isaac Breuer, sent a Shiloh to the Moetzik Delator, which they didn't, want to, they didn't want to deal with, but he put it out there. What is the official position of Gura if the British will offer a state? Are we in favor of a Jewish state in Palestine or not? And, you know, there was no, uh, there was chaluka days among the Gedolim. Do you want a Jewish state? You want a Jewish state? A Zionist state? You want a Zionist state? This was on the table. Do you want a Zionist state now? Is that good in favor of this in principle or not? And uh, I remember, Rabbi, uh, who is it? Dr. Hill Simon the whole thing because he was there Dr. Kranzler from Baltimore was there and uh, very bitter uh, uh, arguments at the Agoda Convention and as I recall it uh, who how did it go again? the Litvish rabbis were all in favor of it with the exception of Bukhan and Wasserman and maybe Ryan Cutler all the others were in favor of it and the German-Hungarian rabbis even though they lived under Hitler were all against it except for Breuer uh, Breuer and Dr. Breuer and, and somebody else. I forget. Um, maybe it was Cyrilson. Maybe that's what it was. Because he was super in favor. He said, if we have a chance for a state of Israel now, Zionist, minus, is the Holocaust about to happen. If you can get a Jewish state in, in three 
feet by three feet of Palestine. Take it, baby. And let's start moving people there. Oh, my goodness. Just imagine. Eventually, the British pulled it out. You know, the Jews couldn't decide, and the British withdrew the offer. Just let's play what if. This is a very painful what if. Let's just say in 1938, it would have happened. And they would have set up a Jewish state in half of the size of the state of Israel. So for our purposes, you'd have Tel Aviv, you'd have Haifa, you'd have the Galil. That's what it would be. Okay, so what? So move the six million Jews there. You get what I'm saying? Better than under Hitler, better than dying in Auschwitz. In those, uh, uh, you know, mass shootings. You see what I'm saying? That's who he was. That's who he was. Now, um, uh, see, very sensitive. Now I want to tell you something. He uh, published two volumes, as I recall, of the Shalos and Shubas. I used to have them, and I can't remember who I lend them out to somebody, and they're gone. That's a real shame. It's a real shame. But there's one that's very famous and always brought up in the non from literature uh, for their purposes. But it, but I want to tell you, it shows what, what a gone he was. And uh, it was a very interesting case. And this is the real life that he lived in. Okay? It was in the Tshubas, in the Machilev. And it happened in Bulgaria. Right? And, uh, and, Matt, and it was a story. You can make a movie from this. Look, I can't spend the whole time talking about all the Shalos and Shubas, but I'll just whet your appetite. This is the most often quoted that I know of in many books. There was a girl in Romania, uh, I'm sorry, in Bulgaria, which is the country south of Romania. There about 50,000 Jews there. And Romania, the Bulgarians have a healthy anti-Semitism drone. But on the other hand, the Jewish community always tried to blend in as much as possible, like that they weren't so from. And uh, there was a girl who was not Jewish, from a Chasha Bulgarian family, and when she was like 16 years old, she became a Gerritzetic for, for some reason or other. She, and she was the only child of a, of a Chasha family. And uh, she fell in love with Judaism. And she converted to Judaism like at the age of 17 or something like that. And the parents agreed, which is really most unusual. You know what I'm saying? Bulgaria is like the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. And she became a firm Jew. And after two years three years, I don't remember. She met a Jewish guy. Uh, she was from than him. And they fell in love. And we'll get married. I'll say it again. She was going to make him show me Shabbos. And when they went to the rabbi to get married, he said, fine. And then he found out the guy's a Cohen. A, a, a Cohen can't marry Gears. Forget it. Oh my goodness. And why can't a Cohen marry Gears? What, what's the reason Cohen can't marry Because she has the din of a zona. Right? If you know the din. Now, oh my lord. He blew up. The Jewish community in... No, the Chassan blew up. The Jewish community in Bulgaria, which was not from for the most part, 95%, blew up. Uh, and then it got into the Geisha newspapers. That's all you need. This is the 1930s. The anti-Semitism is building up. The Hitler is building up. And he says... And it was a girl, and the, the, the Jew can't marry because she has a den of Arizona. She's considered a prostitute. You understand? And uh, what a disgusting religion the Jewish religion is. And so basically, the, the, uh, the, 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 it became an a, a anti-Semitic cause celebra. And the boy, who wasn't from me, said like this, I'm in love with the girl. The hell with all of you. If, if, you, if I can't get married, I'll convert to a Christian. And I'll marry as a Christian. Let her go back to being a Christian. No, we're in love. I don't, we don't care about the religious stuff. 
I don't know what the girl's position was in all this. Anyway, poor rabbi in Bulgaria, whatever his name was, so he writes to Rachel and says, help, what should I do? And in a famous uh, uh, ruling, he said, you can marry him. He had his reasons, but obviously, uh, this is what I want you to, to, to listen to, all right? Uh, he said, this is a special case, a one-time situation, because of this, that, and the other, and uh, no, it's a classic chuba in which you're dealing with a very specific situation. And he said, a, a big part of what I'm doing is because Ava, because anti-Semitism. We don't want the anti-Semitism to grow up in Romania. It's grown up so big every, everywhere else. And there are certain things, you know, acidocalism, bits of derabim and all this. Uh, he built a case. Let me put it this way. If you said it, I said it's, you know, we, we'd be losers. He was a, one of the Gedole Hador, and everybody knows this is exactly why to go to a Godot, if possible, okay? And, um, uh, because otherwise the guy will marry, uh, you know, he'll marry, the, there's all kinds, you know, what, it's better than if the boy converts, you understand? And Anita and all this stuff, yeah, there are reasons. Uh, and so he gave a head to work. The reason I, I know this is, I first, before I ever read anything from Cyril, I once read a book uh, a million years ago by a conservative rabbi, and he was trying to make the case that it's okay for a coin to marry Gilles, and he said, Cyrilson did it, you know? And then I saw later on, it was always brought down, Cyrilson did it, and this is the problem with the noun from. You take a case which is exceptional, then you make it a, it becomes a a, a, a regular. You said, this, this is the problem always with the, with the left-wingers. You're afraid to say anything that's a heter because then they'll take and run with it. Even though you only meant, it should only be for this case, in this specific situation, is exceptional. Um, and he wrote, you know, this is an exception. But the, the non from the, the others, they never look for exception. They say, no, 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 once it's there, it's there. You know, say, this, this, this is the problem. This is the ones that make life difficult for everybody else because otherwise you'd have uh, more heter for specific situations. That's why nowadays, a lot of times if somebody gives up sock, uh, which is very uh, lenient or something like that, they don't publish it. And they don't publish it not because they're afraid so much, they're afraid of the non from and the left-wingers. They'll turn a bidyevit into a lechatchila. Okay? And it became a classic case. But I want to tell you something. Speaking historically, what did he say? And so that's what they did. The girl got married. You know, Batishko to Machlokas. The coming married the Gears. Now, wait a second. The a few years later came the Holocaust. The only country that didn't, didn't kill the Jews was was Bulgaria as a son of a gun. If you know anything about Europe, uh, there's Denmark. They had they sent a few they had a few Jews away. Bulgaria had a sizable Jewish population, fifty sixty thousand, and it's a co- very complicated subject. But it's remarkable the Bulgarians did not have the anti-Semitism during World War Two. Hitler was constantly pushing... It's a complicated subject. I'm simplifying. Hitler was com- constantly pushing them. Give me the Jews. Give me the Jews. I want to kill them. And the Bulgarian government wouldn't do it. The, the king of Bulgaria, Boris, and the government, they wouldn't do it. In fact, you won't believe what I'm about to tell you. They had a train where they put a bunch of Jews on to send them to Auschwitz, and the head of the church threw himself in front of the train. <laughs> he said, I won't let the train go. At the end, they didn't do it. And, w- and when Hitler put maximum pressure on, on the Bulgarians... What they did was they rounded up all the Jews and they sent them all to work camps in the mountains building roads. That's how they saved their life. Because the work camp wasn't that bad. It's not fun, you know. 
not fun, but they had three meals a day and so forth, and they weren't being killed, it's not Auschwitz. So look what a, a, a Chacham Adif Manavi, look what a Goni was. He says, it's necessary to give this thing so there won't be a big anti-Semitic movement in uh, Bulgaria. And Taka, a few years later, because there wasn't, that's how all the, Roma- the Bulgarians would survive. It's always been very remarkable to me. So this is somebody who's most unusual and a very, very interesting figure. Unfortunately, when the war broke out, you know, Stalin first took over Bessarabia in 1940, I think it was. And then when the communists took over, they closed down all the Yiddishkeit. You know how it goes. And the only reason they didn't kill uh, Cyrilson because he was 80 years old. Now, maybe they would kill him eventually. But, you know, from the Stalin point of view, if he's an old rabbi with a few old people in Shul, who cares? You know, let him die. And then the Germans invaded... And I've seen two versions of what happened. One is that uh, a bomb hit him. Knows when the Germans invaded and they bombed uh, Kishinev, he was killed by a bomb. And the other one is that the Germans, when they came in themselves, the Romanians, they, they murdered him. Doesn't matter. Uh, they had a bad ending. He saw everything around him uh, a collapse, you know, uh, be destroyed. And his body was buried together with the Kishinev pogrom people. I'm told that today, if you want to see where his body is, they build a statue for the Holocaust or something like that, maybe the Kishinev pogroms, and he's under the statue. You know, it's his goof. He's buried under the statue, which is a real bummer, but okay, listen, that's what it is. Uh, I don't know if he had children. I, I don't know that much about him. But the little I know I shared with you, uh, which makes a very remarkable person. So he didn't fit the, the, the pattern. He, he was like ahead of his time in many respects. And he represents, you know, the, the rabbinate almost at its uh, most glorious. By that I mean the able preside over 100,000 people and get them to like you, even though this one's from, this one's not from, this is Zionist, this is anti-Zionist, this is a chassid, this is a misnagid. It, it, it takes a great deal of um, skill to successfully uh, preside over a very variegated uh, kehillah. And I don't know too many people who did. So this is uh, this, a uh, big yard saying, anyway... That's uh, that's what I wanted to share with you today. As I said before, this is in uh, we're doing the Zechor Nishmas, Mr. Fleischman, Shmuel Fleischman, Shamshavaliyah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.